You may ask, how did this tradition get started? I'll tell you. I don't know. But it's a tradition. And because of our traditions, every one of us knows who he is and what God expects him to do. Hello everyone and welcome to Let's Talk Torah. I am Rabbi Tzvi Jacobson with New Radio Media. And we'll spend the next hour talking Torah, learning stuff and having fun while we do it. If you'd like to call into the show, we have a little time at the beginning. Then we have a special guest, but you can call us at 844-999-9249. Or you can always email the show at letstalktorah at gmail.com. But bigger and better things are coming. We're going to be working on the, on I guess we'll call it the webpage, and you'll be able to, to post stuff which we can answer right away. Except I'm not sure how I'm going to answer it right away if I'm talking to you. I can't do two things at once. I mean, I could read, but I'm not going to talk to you. So I guess we'll do that. <laughs> I have to answer during the breaks or during the week. So that's going to be pretty exciting that you don't have to go to the email. Just send it straight to the show. It'll be right on the web page. Everyone can see it. That's coming soon. That'll be exciting. Um, as uh, all the different uh, platforms we're on, I just found out today we're on this uh, Amazon Fire Stick. Those who are watching know what it is. And the numbers there are just incredible. And I didn't even see the rest of the podcast numbers, but we are booming. But let's get into the real stuff. So this week was Memorial Day. My father was a veteran, Vietnam. Um, we don't say happy veteran, uh, happy Memorial Day, but it's Memorial Day. Um, and it's actually perfect timing for a guest that we will have after the first segment. Her name is Ellen Besner. She has a book on Canadian Jews in World War II and the, the enlisting, the, how they enlisted, why they enlisted, what happened to the men, to the women, the anti-Semitism that went on, the organizations that were pushing them to enlist. Um, the Canadian Army wasn't so easy if you were Jewish to to get in and even move up in rank. Um, Ellen has spent uh, six years working on a book, which we're going to talk about later. A lot, a lot of good stuff right after Memorial Day. A lot of topics, like every Torah portion, we'll do the best we could. Uh, we are at the end of Leviticus. This is the last Torah portion in the book of Ayikra, the third book known as the book of Leviticus. And uh, we want to talk about all this stuff. There's blessings, there's there's curses, which we'll talk about what they mean. Um, there's valuation of people that want to donate themselves or different age children to the temple. There's responsibility for each other. Lots of good stuff. We'll do the best we could to get through a really packed Torah portion along with our interview later. So let's get it rolling. So the Torah starts out and God says, if you follow my laws, follow my statutes, go on my laws, listen to what I say, there's going to be fantastic reward. Now, it's interesting, all the rewards are physical. Rain, crops, uh, no war, plenty, all very physical stuff. And you got to wonder that, you know, God is spiritual, and he created a wonderful world with great physical beauty and things we can appreciate about the world and, and we can get pleasure in this world. But really, really, at the end of the day, 
if this is it, like, it's good. Well, not complaining. It's a wonderful world. Love this world. Love the family. Love people. But there's got to be more. There's this uh, this omnipotent God has created the world. It's got to be better than this. And the truth is, at the end of the day, all the good you do in this world is rewarded in a spiritual way. A person's soul is part of his body. The soul leaves the body. The soul gets rewarded. Um, we'll call it up in heaven. So if that's the case for doing all of God's commandments, studying Torah, uh, being kind, doing all the stuff that God is asking of me, then it would make sense that Torah should tell me a list of spiritual rewards. What's all the physical rewards? So a simple answer is, as people, we don't relate to spiritual rewards. You tell, uh, I tell my third graders, so uh, if I have a program, I want them to go to sleep on time, I want them to eat a good breakfast, I'll make an ice cream party, I'll bring in uh, danishes or cookies or something. It's a little bit strange. Like, I want them to eat a good breakfast every day and the reward is ice cream, but that's fine. Once a, once a month they can have ice cream if they've had a good breakfast and went to sleep on time. That's I mean, the purpose of my program is so the children can study better, they stay healthier. That's what I'm looking for. So the reward is ice cream? Like, what gives? And the answer is because that is what a child relates to. The same way, the rewards that are mentioned at the beginning of this Torah portion are rewards that me and you relate to. So I'll understand I'm going to do good, I'm going to get rewarded. Of course I know I'm going to get much greater rewards in heaven. But, but in this world, there'll be rewards that I can relate to. So let's talk about some of those interesting rewards that the Torah talks about. One of them is rain. Now again, it's drizzling outside, a lot of people are not so happy, it's going to be raining all week, thunderstormed yesterday, the night's been thundering, which is good, my grass seeds are starting to get wet and they'll hopefully fill in all the patches in my backyard, but um, most of us are not so happy when it rains. Because you ruined my baseball game, you ruined my golfing trip, you ruined my walk in the park, I have to go to the car, I have to get my umbrella, which I don't own, or my raincoat, which I also don't own. So uh, we're not so happy with rain. And the reason we're not happy with rain is because we no longer live in an agricultural society. If you lived 100 years ago, 150 years ago, 200 years ago, the farm was everything. Rain was your life. You danced especially if you lived like in Israel. So Israel, the rainy season is at best three or four months during the year. So you lived for that rainy season. And when it rained, you danced. No one would ever complain that it's not raining. And the truth is, there are parts of this country, Oklahoma, Texas, some of those areas, they also, they're suffering when, when there's no rain. But even for us nowadays, if you think about it, Almost everything revolves around food. Of course, we like food, we like to go out to eat, we like to have a good breakfast, but everything revolves around food. You Just think about it. You go to the grocery store, you need people to make cardboard boxes, you need the trucks to deliver the food, you need people to make the food, you need people to sell the food, people to build the shelves. There's, there's so much business that goes into creating a, a grocery store supplying me with food. I have table and chairs to eat on. I have a roof over my head so it's uh, comfortable when I eat. Everything revolves around food. We just don't recognize that the only way I'm going to get all that food is if it rains. So rain is very, very important. Um, so God says it'll be your rain. 
So the commentaries explain that it'll rain in the land of Israel. It won't rain outside of Israel. So the neighboring countries will have to rely on Israel for food. So we'll have food. We'll be able to supply food, and uh, and we'll be successful. That's one of the blessings in this week's Torah portion. Um, another one, which is really, I guess, that's the king of blessings. God says there will be peace. And interesting enough, the last blessing of the what's called the Shemona Esrei or the Amida, when we when we pray quietly, we say eighteen, really nineteen blessings. So the last blessing is we ask God for peace. And the reason for that is that at the end of the day, if there's no peace, you have nothing. I could be the wealthiest person in the world. I could have the cars, the houses, the businesses. I could have whatever I want. I know people say health also. It's true. But uh, uh, without peace, you really, really have nothing. And peace is, is individual and really globally. If I'm a country and I'm forever worrying about terrorist attacks, I'm forever worrying about people breaking into my home, I'm forever worrying about walking down the street and someone's going to shoot at me, you can't live. You can't live. You have a store, they break in, they steal your stuff, so you have stuff. Then they steal it. You get more stuff, they steal it again. If there's no peace, a, a country, you can't live. The country can't survive. The city can't survive. It's not a life. I mean, there's a reason why so many people gather at the American border to get in. Not discussing, we should let them in, we shouldn't let them in. Irrelevant. But there's a reason why they want to get in, because everybody understands that I, I, I got to live. I, I can't live in a, in a country where I'm afraid to turn around because uh, someone's going to kidnap my kid. Someone's going to shoot at me. Someone's going to force me to do some crime. It's, uh, you can't live. So that's globally. But even forgetting globally, um, in a person's own personal house, if there's peace in the house, if there's harmony is the word people like, if there's harmony in the house, then life is fantastic. You have a few more dollars, you have a few less dollars, you have to disappoint the children, they can't get every toy they want, they can't get ice cream every time the ice cream t- truck comes down the street. They won't be so happy, it won't be perfect. But if at the end of the day, when you live in that house and you grow up in that house and it was a loving, peaceful kind house, then the chances are you'll be a regular, normal, outstanding citizen because you grew up normal and you enjoy the house you grew up in. If you grew up in a house where there's always fighting and yelling and screaming, you hide under your blankets. You speak to some of these people. It goes back to last week's conversation. A child that grows up in a house where parents yell and scream at each other, the kids lock the door. They hide. They don't want to come out. It's not a life. They don't want to go home. They'd rather sleep over at the friend's house because the friend's house, the parents aren't screaming. So with all the blessings that the Torah is going to talk about, for all what we're going to benefit and rain and we'll see war and we'll see produce and other stuff, but if there's no peace, at the end of the day, nothing has value. You can speak to anybody you want. Hopefully you haven't experienced it. If you have experienced it, you know exactly what I'm talking about. I mean, that's what people go through a divorce. Like, they, they can't live. The kids can't live. The parents can't live. It's a, it's a horrible life. So we, our last prayer is for peace. The Torah tells us in this week's Torah portion that God says, I will give you peace. Sounds like for peace sometimes or maybe always we need God's help. And God is certainly willing to give the help if you're willing to put in the effort, right? In other words, nothing is free. You can't be a monster and then expect to have peace. It's not happening. 
But that's, that's the peace angle that's the most important. The phrase the Talmud uses is that there is no vessel that, that, that holds blessing. So there's no vessel, there's no pot, cup, whatever you want to call it, that holds blessing more better than peace. Peace is where it's at. Okay, um, another interesting blessing is no sword, meaning no army, will pass through your country, meaning the land of Israel. So again, nowadays, our armies work different. They just move around on boats all over the place. But obviously, in those days, you marched your armies. And the land of Israel is really an amazing area in the world, right? It connects, um, I guess we'll call it Asia Minor or the Middle East, and it connects Europe, and it connects Africa. Again, in those days, Africa was a world power. That was Egypt or North Africa. So your armies, without fail, if you were the Egyptian army going to fight the Syrian army, you got to march to Israel. So God says, if you're deserving, you will get this amazing blessing. No armies will go through your land, even if they're not attacking you, even if they're not bothering you. They're not going through your country. So interesting enough, there was a king, and we're going to talk about this in a couple weeks. I have a guy coming in, we're going to talk about idol worship. But there was a king who um, he, his goal was to clean out all the idol worship in the land of Israel. And he did a pretty good job. Publicly, it was all gone. He even had like a secret police force. They weren't so secret. That they knocked on your door and they searched and they checked. Uh, what's going on around here? Uh, is there any idols around we would like to search? But there were people, like always, that they were smarter than the police. They actually had their doors were like double doors that split open. So when the door was together, the idol was, I guess, connected on the door. When the door was split, you couldn't tell it was an idol. So, you, the, so the guard walks in, the police walks in, opens the door, walks in, looks around, no idol. And then the, the police goes out, the idol is back. This king, he personally felt that the Jewish people was on such a high spiritual level. He was mistaken. And Jeremiah the prophet told him he was mistaken. But he believed that the Jewish people is on a high spiritual level. They deserve this blessing. So therefore, when the king of Egypt asked permission to march his army through Israel, the king says, the Jewish king says, not letting. My Torah says that when we are on the right spiritual level, when we're doing what we're supposed to do, then no army marches through our land. That's what our Torah says. You can't come. The king, again, he said, he pleaded with him. He said, I'm not fighting with you. I'm not looking to fight with you, but I got to go fight with this other king. And you're the only way to get through. You're going to let me through. I'm telling you, I'm marching through. The king says, no, 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 I'm not letting. So the, this pharaoh, he brings his army through. And this Jewish king brings out his army to say, you're not allowed. So the Egyptian king, the pharaoh, told his archers, do not shoot at any of the Jewish soldiers. Just aim at the king's carriage or wherever he's hanging out. And they killed him. He didn't know they had all these hidden idols. Therefore, he wasn't deserving. So, but the, conce the concept, he's right. Except he didn't realize that things were not as good as they appeared to be. Like all good leaders. He thought everything was according to plan. And he didn't realize that uh, it's not according to plan. So that's another one of the blessings. Um, another blessing in a few minutes left. It says, few, the, a few soldiers will chase many soldiers. So a very interesting set of numbers. It says five will chase 20 and 
ten, a hundred will chase ten thousand. Now, in the math, it doesn't work. It was five chasing twenty means each soldier can chase twenty. A hundred chasing ten thousand means each soldier can chase a hundred. So what gives? So I was explain. You cannot compare a few, a small amount of people keeping God's law, keeping the Torah, doing what they're supposed to do, to many people keeping God's law. So there's there's strength in numbers, but the strength in numbers is the more people that are doing what they're supposed to do will will cause a much greater um, effect to the blessing that God is sending down. Another blessing it talks about is you're going to have such an overabundance of food. You're going to have so much food that, again, so if you're a farmer, you understand you, 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 you harvest and you thresh and you winnow and you leave it in the field to dry out and then you gather it in, you put it in your silo and it's your year's supply of food and you're going to sell it. It's going to be seeds for next year. But what happens if you had so much? If you had so much that um, that you um, that it's your silo is still half filled, and now you got to bring in the new stuff. So it's a great problem to have, but you're gonna have to empty out your old stuff to bring in the new stuff. So that again is a blessing, and a, and one more blessing food-wise. There's a lot of food blessings because again, for most people throughout history, the most important thing is you want a roof over your head and you want to eat. You don't want to starve. So if you have food, if you have a house, so life is good. So a lot of the blessings have to revolve around food. Otherwise, everybody's starving. You have nothing. So it says you'll be satisfied with the little bits. You won't have to eat so much. And I hear my music is now coming on. So when we come back, we're going to be joined by Ellen Besner, author of Double Threat. So hold through the break. You're listening to Rabbi Tzuyan. Let's talk Torah. And we'll be right back. I'll tell you what happened. G'day, Morty. I got the Szechuan sauce. We're at C2E2 with the legendary Chris Claremont. Greetings, my fellow geeks. My name is Jordan Trevilian, and this is Get It to the Geeks. We are here with David Yost, the original Blue Power Ranger. Nobody right. promised you when you bought the thing on PS4 that you could play it on Switch. But your, your excuse is garbage. I'm going to pull out my crossbow. All right, sweet chainmail armor. Let's see what you got. Detroit. It's the home of some of the world's most talented artists. It's where techno and Motown were born. It's a city where you can experience raw, untamed rock and roll. I'm Ben Rose, and I'm inviting you to join me weekday afternoons from 4 to 5 for the Motor City Juke Joint. I'll have interviews with musicians, info on what's going on around town, and a playlist curated by me just for you. It's all right here on NewRadioMedia.com. Can that itch be caused by stress? Now we already know that stress can increase your odds of everything from colds to cancer. And now there's new research to suggest that stress can also make you itch. You see, it seems clear that stress activity is the immune system of mice, making them itch, and the experts say the same is probably true for humans. The study from the University of Medicine in Berlin and McMaster University in Canada found that stress can exacerbate skin disease by increasing the number of immune cells in the skin. Now, these immune cells are believed responsible for initiating and perpetuating skin diseases that can make you itch. The report in the American Journal of Pathology indicates that doctors were able to prevent stress-induced increases in white blood cells in the skin by blocking the function of the proteins that attract these immune cells to the skin in the first place. 
Now more work is certain to come in this area of research. With another prescription for your health, I'm Dr. Jim Bragman. And we're back, and we are connecting with our guest, but I didn't get my signal yet. I got my signal. So, we are joined by Ellen Besner, professor, I think still, of the University of Toronto, lectures on journalism and podcasts, which is helpful for me, and author of Double Threat. Ellen, how are you today? I am very well, thank you. It's an honor to be with you. Oh, this is going to be fun. See, I brought your book, but you have it right in back of you. That is so easy. Now, everyone right, gets... you can see our uh, beautiful pull-up display with some of the brave uh, Canadian Jewish service personnel who served in World War II, including some of the most famous. Oh, we're going to try to do as much as we could in our limited time. But first things first, I always ask my guests, who is Ellen Besner? Well, you, uh, you, you mentioned it. I am a Canadian author, journalist, professor, mom of two, um, uh, and uh, also a big Raptors fan. I know that is a big game tonight in Canada. You may know, have heard of the basketball team that is about to play for the NBA Finals. So that is what's going on here. And yes. you have our old coach in Detroit, do you not? Yes, that's all we have. We, ha we do officially have a basketball team. I'm not sure why. We also have a baseball team, and I'm still not sure about that one either. So, but yes, sports in Toronto is certainly doing way better than the great city of Detroit. Right, and you have our coach, Dwayne Casey, who helped the Raptors get to where we are, so maybe, you know, in a few years. Anyway, let's talk maybe. about... Let's um, talk the book. So, first things first, I wanted to ask you. The book is called Double Threat, Canadian Jews, the Military, and World War II, and you've done at least six years, I know, of interviews and research. What happened that gave you the impetus to write this book? It was because of a visit to a cemetery in Normandy, and I'm about to revisit it next week. I'm heading off tomorrow to France for the 75th anniversary of D-Day, and I will go back to the same grave that started this whole journey. In 2011, uh, we were there after a family visit, and we went to the cemetery on, near Juneau Beach, where the, most of the Canadians are, uh, who served and were killed in Normandy in 1944 are buried. Uh, it's a lot smaller than the American beaches, and of course, because there were 14,000 Canadians who landed on D-Day, not half a million, like the Americans did. But um, one of the graves, there's only 20 that have Stars of David on it. And when I went to see these graves, of course, as Jewish people do, we put stones and we visit the ones with the Stars of David among the 2,000 uh, regular graves. But the one that said G. Melts, bombardier, age 25, from Toronto, under the Jewish star, it said, he died, so Jewry shall suffer no more. And I got goosebumps. And I still get goosebumps when I hear and read about it. And I needed to know who he was, how he got there, and who put this amazing epitaph on his gravestone. Because basically that summed up why Canadians of Jewish faith volunteered, 17,000 of them, that's 40% uh, of Canada's Jewish population at the time, which was my, minute, 1.5% of the entire country when the war broke out, um, 168,000 Jews. And they sent 17,000 to war. So who was this man who represented why the Jews fought? And that's how it all started. Amazing. 
So as we're going to move through the book and different stuff about anti-Semitism and the Canadian Army, but first things first, why did you call the book Double Threat? Well, it's a double entendre in a way, um, and it's got to do with the fact that not only were the Jewish Canadians and the Americans, of course, fighting against uh, fascism and Hitler and for democracy and freedom, but for the Canadians of Jewish faith, this was their war. It was a personal war because they were going to liberate their brethren, their mishpucha, their grandparents, their uncles, their aunts who didn't come out from the old country to the new Golden and Medina, to the new North America, uh, like my ancestors made it. Uh, and they were stuck and they were uh, in mortal, mortal, mortal danger. And many, many of them, six million we know, were murdered by the Nazis. So they knew that this was a war to free the Jewish people from the final solution. So it was a double reason for going. But for every other service personnel, whether they were Protestant or Catholic or uh, other religions, um, th they went and they fought and that was it. But for Jewish personnel, should they be captured by the Nazis and their Hebrew on their dog tags was discovered by the enemy or if they were captured and they had to you know, pull their pants down, which happened and display, uh, whether they were circumcised or not, their fate would be very dark indeed. And so that was a double threat to the Jewish personnel who went, yet they overcame all of the anti-Semitism that they faced in Canada by the government, in the military, in society, as well as this threat from the Nazis, and they went anyway. That's amazing. I mean, it is, it's, it is amazing, and uh, we're going to talk about why they so much wanted to enlist, even though you sort of answered it. But before we get there, um, as you went through the book, you discovered a lot of anti-Semitism um, what happened if somebody enlisted and it was clear that he was Jewish? He was behind the eight ball. What happened to him? Or her, by the way. Well, him or her, because we did have 270 women who were uh, enlisted as well. And they also experienced anti-Semitism. First of all, there were a lot of uh, military units that just weren't taking Jewish recruits. And you would think that the government of Canada at the time, Prime Minister Mackenzie King, would have been thrilled to have all these motivated and really keen, you know, recruits flocking to the armories to sign up. But you would be wrong because don't forget, this was the Canada of anti-Semitism, the MS St. Louis ship, which also the American government turned away in 1939, full of 900 German Jewish refugees. And um, I'm so sorry. Uh, and then um, made them go back to uh, Germany and Hitler's Europe, where many were perished in, in the Holocaust. Canada also turned it away. Very anti-Semitic. Uh, and so um, when they got to some of these units, the colonels just weren't taking Jews. As soon as it became clear, they would say, no, uh, you have flat feet or no, you have a heart defect, which was a lie. It wasn't true, but they had to go get it, you know, checked out. And it turned out usually to be nothing. But by then, that was it. The war was over for them. So they ended up being turned away or their applications just wouldn't but sit there on the desk of the, you know, the officers for months. And we have a fellow in, in Toronto who was one of the most famous Zionists, one of the wealthiest Canadian families. Uh, they owned um, a mansion in Toronto. He had his own yacht. He went to Upper Canada College, which is a very prestigious Protestant school. Um, and uh, he, he also ended up, uh, his family ran the biggest menswear manufacturer in Canada called Tip Top Tailors. So they had uh, stores, they were very well off, and he wanted to settle his score with Hitler. That's what he told his family. And so he said, I can sail, I have my own yacht, I can skipper it, I'm going down to enlist in the Navy as an officer. He waited nine months and they never called him. And he found out why. It's because they were very, very British colonial attitudes that 
you know, Canada, of course, was a British colony, and you had to be white, and you had to be Protestant, and they didn't think that Jews belonged in the Navy wardroom. So he ended up being in the, in the military. He, he joined the army afterwards. So this happened in the Air Force. It, it also had words in their interview uh, documents, which I've seen that would be sort of, today you'd be fired if you were human resources <laughs> um, personnel saying things like, oh, we'll be rather rough due to background. And you would see this on the wording that they would not recommend them for promotion or not recommend them as pilot material, things like that. Um, the Navy barely took any, as I mentioned, 500, uh, that's it. The Air Force took lots, but they had a reverse anti-Semitism. They wanted Jewish, smart Jewish navigators who could do, you know, trigonometry and um, uh, math and, and stuff so they could be the navigators. But they didn't want them as pilots so much, although we did have lots who made it eventually uh, towards the latter stages of the war. Um, and so that's what they faced. And then in the barracks, people would punch them out. They would get drunk. They would call them all kinds of names. In some cases there were, um, let's say they were under fire in Italy and there was a foxhole that was there and people tried to get in to escape the bullets and uh, some of the officers would try to get in who were Jewish and one medic was said, I want to get in there with you and the guy said, you're not coming in my foxhole, you GD Jew. So, I mean, this is what they faced, right? That's unbelievable. Uh, it I is unbelievable. And there was so much more anti-Semitism, even in a religious sense, uh, which I can talk about if you like. I'm open to everything because to me, it's all it's 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 eye opening. It's enlightening. It's good to know. And and I do want to talk about it soon. But it's good to know that, that what happened, people need to know. I mean, we talk about with racism all the time. If people don't even know what it is or what happened, then you're certainly not going to fix anything because you think nothing has to be fixed. Um, but uh, but go right ahead. What other? I think you told me about parades or something. I can't remember right, what it was. Exactly. So in the Canadian uh, and British tradition, because Canada, of course, was very close, uh, closely allied to Britain, they have these mandatory Sunday church parades. They're called church parades. So the Protestants go to one side of the base and they do theirs on Sundays, and the Catholics go to theirs. There was no provision for years for any Jewish or any other alternative um, services. First of all, the Canadian um, government wouldn't allow any rabbis to enlist as chaplains until 1941. Canada entered the war in 1939. But the government said, until you prove that there was a thousand men of Jewish faith enlisted, go get lost. And you know, counting Jews nowadays is very controversial as we're going through the Omer now. And, and um, But in that time, the Canadian Jewish community had to literally count how many men of Jewish faith enlisted send this document to Ottawa and beg for a permission to have a Jewish chaplain? Eventually, they did get their first one. Um, but there was no provision for services. So the men who didn't want to go to Sunday church parade, who were Jewish, ended up being punished with doing KP, kitchen duty, or peeling potatoes, or scrubbing latrines, things like that, um, until uh, 1943, really, when things kind of opened up more and they became uh, available for Jewish men because there were more rabbis in as captains or majors in the different services by then. But until then, um, lots of lots of discrimination. And um, and, and unfortunately, um, you know, when you're in a war, 
you don't want to have to deal with this garbage from your own side. <laughs> you have enough problems from the Germans, right? So it made the experience very difficult for the Jewish personnel who served. And forget kosher food. There just wasn't nothing. Until they, they wanted... brought 1943, 1944, 1945, when the rabbis ordered 500 tons of Manischewitz matzah to go to the front lines. And they managed to scribble and scramble and make seders for them in Europe once they got there. But um, in terms of kosher, no, that didn't happen. They had bacon, eggs, and matzah one day uh, at a base in Canada. And they thought that was kind of strange, but funny. <laughs> strange and funny and probably sad. Um, so if you, I mean, it's, again, we're talking about people that are volunteering. It's hard to find so many volunteers. You have all these Jewish men and women that want to volunteer. They want to go fight. Um, they're running into roadblocks when they go to enlist. Um, I'm sure at some point people started figuring out that it was, uh, that there were roadblocks. But they wanted to enlist. Like some people would imagine, oh, you don't want to take me, so I'm free. These guys wanted to get in. So what did they do? Well, most people wore their Jewishness proudly. I know one veteran, uh, Marie Jacobs, he wore two different sets of Arba Kanfis or daily tzitzit under his uh, uniforms that his grandparents made for him all the way through France and, and Germany uh, with the artillery. Uh, he didn't shy away from that. Uh, others had a ghost cone of their plane. Instead of having a pinup girl you know, painted on it, they had a Star of David. There were lots of people who said, I'm, I want the Germans to know that I'm a Jew. And they were very proud. But there were at least 2,000 that we know of that either lied or asked to be under what's called other denominations, OD, so that on their dog tags it would say OD, because when they did get captured in Dieppe, for example, you know, thousands of prisoners were taken by the Germans in August of 1942. Um, some of the people that were interviewed who are uh, Canadians of Jewish faith, they ripped their dog tags off as quickly as they could and hid them and buried them in the sand because they didn't want to be in trouble in the POW camps, right? They for sure thought they were going straight to Auschwitz. Um, and others lied or they, they scratched it out once they got to Europe. Just before D-Day, we're about a week Today is D-Day, next week. And I know, for example, Freddie Harris from Toronto, who was a member of a synagogue. His father was a very well-known Jewish uh, doctor down in Toronto's Kensington Market area. He had his bar mitzvah, you know, well-known Jewish family. And he enlisted as a Hebrew. That's what they called it. But when he was killed, his mother got a box with his, um, you know, personal effects. And in it was his dog tag with a cross, a crucifix hanging from it. Like that could make a mother upset. His mother didn't want to talk, even sign for it for six months. She was so shocked. But as we've discovered, he also crossed out Hebrew on his pay book that you have to carry with you just before he went over on the English Channel for D-Day. And he was killed on D-Day. But we think don't it was more of an insurance policy in case he was captured. You know what I mean? As sure. opposed to denying his Judaism. So, you know, and with that a in lot mind. Of people did that as well, but ended up being buried, unfortunately, under a cross. One right, of that, people in our family is buried under a cross because he listed as Protestant and no one ever changed. So, it. that's what I wanted to ask you. Um, there's probably a lot of, uh, of uh, crosses over Jewish boys. So, is anybody trying to fix that? Does anybody even know how to, how to fix it? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, there aren't a lot. And those who have 
been aware of it have managed to, uh, you know, it's not too hard to convince the uh, Commonwealth War Graves Commission that is responsible for all these graves to change it. And in fact, uh, one family has from Regina um, named Clifford Schneer flew as a Pathfinder pilot uh, on dropping sort of signal, you know, um, flares over the target over Germany. And he was a crack pilot. He looked like Errol Flynn, mustache, very, very dashing. Anyway, he was killed uh, and his family didn't know that he was buried under a cross and his grave um, is in Germany. But uh, eventually, the, the, his youngest brother, who had a dream about him 60 years later and said, come visit me. And so he, Norman went and they realized that there was a cross. So they had the government uh, agency redo this new tombstone. And on the anniversary of his being shot down, they had an unveiling with a star of David. And the whole family came from Canada. They brought stones from their cottage, from all the nephews and nieces. It was very moving. And they, well, you were there? No, I've seen pictures and, and, and interviewed the family about it. Okay, amazing. Um, with all the talk, you know, nowadays, women's rights, you said there were women that enlisted. Did they have the same issues with anti-Semitism as the men? I mean, I'm sure there weren't fistfights, but... No, there was no because women are sort of they don't do that, but they're they definitely did. Plus, they had the double Me Too moment that hadn't happened for them yet. So not only were they paid less. Uh, so, for example, a Canadian soldier as a private got a dollar thirty a day when they started and then moved up. The women got 70 cents a day. The women had to wear uh, skirts. Uh, they couldn't have dangly jewelry. They weren't allowed to wear dark nail polish. And um, there was sexual harassment for sure. I've heard, you know, lots of cases from the women I interviewed. Also, it was seen as a shanda uh, to enlist. My aunt, my great aunt, I should say, uh, Auntie Daisy, uh, she was a military policewoman and she knew karate and jujitsu and she was in charge of the um, um, en entry and exit from the Ottawa train station, Ottawa being our capital, as you know. So it was a very uh, important strategic site. And, you know, they called her a girl instead of corporal. And it was very demeaning. Um, but also anti-Semitism, too, because, for example, Evelyn Bloom, who was one of the women who uh, enlisted, um, she lent some of her bunkmates money so they could go home because they, like I told you, they earned very, very little. And then uh, when it was her turn to go home on leave, they said, oh, you're a Jew. You want the money back. And these are the kinds of things, daily little insults that they had to put up with aside from sexual harassment from her supervisor who uh, made her, you know, take her hat off, put her hat back on, not spill the coffee and, and give her a hard time. <laughs> Unbelievable. As we're rushing through with our time, I know there's a few things I want to talk about. You, you touched on um, the Jewish chaplains. Um, once, once everybody worked it out that they allowed Jewish chaplains in, what were they able to accomplish? These chaplains did unbelievable work not only spiritual work with the boys and women in the trenches you know hatching matching dispatching in terms of there were weddings there were uh children born there were deaths but there were also deaths in the field and so there were 16 jewish chaplains throughout the whole canadian uh country and about five or six were overseas that's not a lot and it's a big territory but where they could they held burial services with the proper you know prayers they made sure that the graves were marked properly. Um, they did chesed shil emes, which is such an amazing thing for me, where if they couldn't bury the boy properly, they would get another, uh, the men would get a, a Protestant padre to do the Jewish service. 
and then write home to tell the parents and the, the family that we buried them as Jews, which meant so much to this family because they weren't able to do that for their own family, you know, escort them to their final destination. But at least the, um, the Jewish chaplains would then go a day or two later and make sure the grave was done properly. Many of them carried um, wooden Magain David, like instead of the wooden crosses right. to put up on their temporary graves, they had a bunch in their truck and their jeeps. That was what they did when the men were killed. But they also held this amazing uh, seder in, uh, like I said, in the trenches in Italy. They uh, restored Yiddishkeit once they started to liberate um, Jewish Jewish communities. So they would have uh, they would have parties for Hanukkah for the orphans. Um, they asked the men to be Maccabees and to take all the goodies out of their care packages and give it to the children and the needy, which they did. And the most important thing was, of course, to liberate the camps and try to rescue the survivors help them not only physically and giving them even things like lipstick to the girls at Bergen-Belsen to make them feel human again, but to reunite them with their families around the world. It's called the Great Hunt and um, and save people, bring them back to Canada. Uh, and a lot of Jewish uh, the rabbis did that. Uh, and, and we know of families that got saved because of the Jewish chaplains. Amazing, amazing. As time is running, I know that you're involved in the Kaddish for D-Day initiative. What is that? Is that your program? That's your idea? I think it's an international uh, North American thing that happened in 2014. Um, but I did it for Canada back in 2014, the first time. It was the 70th anniversary of D-Day. And I went and approached all the synagogues to ask them to say Kaddish for the Jewish boys who are buried in Normandy. There are lots of Americans uh, there are over 70 Canadians buried, Jewish Canadians buried in Normandy. Uh, and um, so synagogues, whenever they could, whether it was the Thursday morning or on the Shabbat, they would do a roll call. They would say special prayers and remember those who have passed and sacrificed their lives for our freedom. Because if you say their names and you remember their names, they're never really forgotten. And that was a national um, uh, initiative and it went really well. I'm personally going with a bag full of Yorkshire candles and I'm going to these graves on Thursday myself with a group of, you know, 50 Canadians and we are going to do Kaddish for D-Day right in Normandy for the 70 Jewish boys who are buried there. And I would hope that um, synagogues across Canada and the United States will do the same thing for men and women who were uh, killed in the Second World War. That's amazing. So you you got together with these, you know who these 50 people are going with you, or it's just uh, relatives that want to visit, or why do these 50 people want to go? I know why you want to go. <laughs> I want to go back to George Meltz's grave and say thank you and tell him that the world now knows who he is and what he's done, and to all the other boys who have become my boys, too. Listen, I lost someone in World War II as well, both on the Holocaust side, but also one of the 450 Canadians who was killed is my relative. He was killed in um, a bombing raid. He was in the Air Force, uh, and uh, my great aunt's brother. We never knew about this, and of course, because no one ever talked about it. And that's true for many families of World War II veterans, both in the States and Canada. They just never talked about it when they came home. But do I know these people? Yes, some are families. Uh, one is Jacob Mandel, who was a doctor. And he uh, was killed because he took the shift of General Omar Bradley's personal cardiac doctor that day. So General Bradley has always been grateful to Captain Mandel and his family for sacrificing his life so that Dr. Elliot... Um, could be, you know, 
survive the war, come home and treat him at a five-star general. So we're going to be with that family. I'm going to be with another family from Toronto whose father invented the armored personnel carrier. Uh, he actually invented it and built them in um, on August of 1944. He never got a medal. This is the one I told you that wore the uh, Arba Kanfa, so the daily tzitzis. Um, twice, uh, you know, he would change when they got dirty all through Europe and was very proud to be Jewish. So, yes, I know most of them. Amazing. You know, you write, and we talked about it, that for many years the Canadian government didn't recognize the Jewish soldiers. And your goal, I believe, in your book of double threat, Canadian Jews and military in World War II, um, a plug, right? Uh, but the, the, one of the things you want to accomplish with your book of double threat is um, if the Canadian government should recognize the Jewish soldiers. Is it working? Uh, it has been working because I've been doing it. Um, there is... Um, an article, a web exhibit that has been sent in, and we've been working on it together with Veterans Affairs Canada. They've been working with me based on my book for two and a half years now. Um, so I'm just waiting for it to be published. And I imagine that um, when I go to Europe, the minister, the prime minister, the Veterans Affairs minister, they will all be there and they will hear from me. Okay, good. It's time. Most of the veterans are gone. They're in their... Um, late 90s or early 100s, those few who are still around, they never asked for recognition. They never asked to come out of the shadows. But every other ethnic minority has recognition in Canada, the indigenous, the Chinese who serve, the black Canadians who serve, even hockey players have their own special, you know, exhibit on, on the Canadian website. And the 17,000 Jews, 40% of the population who had a double problem to serve, whose war it was, um, 80 were taken prisoner, 200 were wounded, 200 got medals for bravery, and there's never been anything. It's not because they were anti-Semitic, Rabbi. I think it's because of ignorance. That's plain and simple. But it's beyond time that the, the Jewish boys and their bravery and their sacrifice um, for, should be on the same plate as all the other ethnic minorities who helped Canada and the Allies win World War II. And it's now 75 years since this happened. And that's what your book is going to accomplish. So as my time is running out, so let's leave with two things. First of all, how can we get your book? And second of all, what would you like to leave us with? Well, anyone can get my book uh, on Amazon or Target in the States, as well as uh, my website has a list. That's ellenvesner.com, Ellen with an I. Here's the book. This is what it looks like. I'm sure you've shown it to your people. Oh, yes. Uh, it's in many libraries in the United States, as well as Canada. Um, you can uh, buy it uh, in all the major retailers. So that's the first thing. And also in the ebook on Kindle uh, as well. That's the first thing. The second thing is that the message for today that the veterans that I've interviewed have told me, it's not a dead story from 75 years ago because we're in a world where anti-Semitism is going back up. There are synagogues, as you well know, being with targets of terrorism and hate crimes, and not just synagogues, but uh, mosques and churches in Sri Lanka and black churches in the States. Uh, it's coming back, and the veterans are saying, what did we fight for? What did, the world hasn't learned anything. We need to step up. We need to stop this hatred. We need to do something. We need to not be bystanders anymore. Learn from what we did, take our torch, and go with it, because they don't want to see the same thing happen again, and they're very, very worried. And our message, and that's my message, is read my book and take up the torch of these brave Canadians who uh, went over to stop Hitler, and it's time to, um, to listen to what they said. 
Ellen, I can't thank you enough. Again, that was Ellen Besner, author of Double Threat. I have to let you go. Thank you so much for coming on. I hope everybody learned a lot. And uh, well, I'm sure we'll be in touch again. Thank you again. Thank you for having me. Okay. So now, as we're getting right up to my break, um, I, I don't even know if I have a minute because my little numbers aren't on the screen. But, the, oh, there, oh, I have about uh, 45 seconds. Um, I just want to throw in something really quick. One of the commands in this week's Torah portion is, is that everybody's responsible for everybody else. There's no such thing as walking down the street and seeing somebody do something wrong and ignoring. Our job is to go ahead and to be responsible. I see you do something good, I help you. I see you doing something wrong, I got to let you know. And that was really quick for something we called Arvos, and I would love to get into it more, but I don't think I have time. So, you've been listening to Rabbi Tzvi on Let's Talk Torah. And if you hold right through the break, we'll be joined by Rabbi Jonas and Goldson as soon as we get back. So, hold through the break. Hey, how are you? I'm Gerald Valley, and I want to invite you to listen, watch, share my new show, The Drop-In, on New Radio Media. It is going to cover skate, music, culture, actually all sports. I have some great guests lined up, and it's to inspire and motivate people to make the most of this life we have. Check out the inspiration, the stoke, and the life of The Drop-In with Daryl Valley. the latest LiftMaster garage door openers and the toughest retractable screens on the market all by the push of a button. Tarno Doors is celebrating its 50th year anniversary and is the recipient of the 2016 Subcontractor of the Year from the Home Builders Association. Tarno knows doors. Tarno knows doors. Surfing the internet can be good for your brain, especially if you're getting up there in years. UCLA scientists say that the internet searching helps to stimulate your brain function by triggering centers in your brain that control decision-making and complex reasoning. In a study to be published in the American Journal of Geriatric Psychiatry, the researchers say that using the internet to seek out new information might stimulate the brain enough to sustain brain health and your cognitive ability. Before the computer age, the one activity that was linked to an active mind was solving crossword puzzles. The fact that even simple tasks like searching the internet might enhance your brain circuitry suggests that our brains are really sensitive to mental exercise and actually continue to learn as we grow older. So using an internet search engine such as Google produces the same brain activities as reading, but it also increases activity in areas of your brain that control decision making and complex reasoning. With another prescription for your health, I'm Dr. Jim Bragman. And we're back. And as always, or as always as possible, we are joined by Jonasen Goldstein of Ethical Imperatives. Jonasen, how are you today? Jonasen, how are you today? Um, someone's going to pull you up on the screen. We're, uh, are we there? Are we there? He's live. He's live? He's live. We'll figure it out. Maybe I'll talk for you, Anderson. We could do that. Is he muted? He is not muted. Anderson, as soon as I can hear your voice, I will let you come on. 
But as we're figuring out, Yenison, you'll just have to listen to me. We don't have you live yet. But we were talking right before the break about the concept of Arvlis, that everyone's responsible for everybody else. That's in this week's Torah portion. And I always tell a story about, uh, with my kids in class, I say, imagine we went on a boat, and everybody gets their own room, their own stateroom, and one of the boys brings in his uh, three-foot drill and starts drilling a hole through the bottom of the boat. So, and you walk by and you hear the drilling and you see the guy drilling through the floor and you say to him, is he still supposed to be on? I'm going to keep talking. You let me know when we're on. But, okay, we'll try again. Anyways, we're working on Rabbi Goldson. He's coming. But in any case, so I always, I, I, so you're, you're passing by the stateroom, you hear the drill going and you ask the boy, you say, uh, why are you drilling a hole here in the boat? You know, you're going to sink the boat. Imagine if the boy were to say to you, this is my room, mind your own business. So everybody understands that's ridiculous, right? In other words, you are causing damage that will affect everybody. And if you're causing damage that will affect everybody, then I have a right to tell you to stop. And not only do I have a right to tell you to stop, I must tell you to stop because you are going to affect a lot of people by what's going on over here. So that's the concept of what we call arvos or arevos, that everybody's responsible for each other because, because when God looks at the world, he goes ahead and he says, how many good things has the world done? How many rotten things has the world done? It's all a scale. So every time you do something good, so the scale weighs on the positive side. Every time you do something rotten, it weighs on the rotten side, on the bad side. So... So we, in effect, cause what happens in the world. Do we lose him? Do we try to get him back or it's not working? Try to get him back, see what happens. While we're again attempting, I have no idea what happened over there. I'm sure I'll find out later. But again, so that's this concept that, that we're all in the boat together. And we all affect each other. As you think that, that your good deed has no effect anywhere else in the world, it's not true. God looks at the world as a whole world. And if something goes wrong in one part of the world, if somebody's doing something rotten in one part of the world, it's going to affect people elsewhere. How do I know? What do I know? I don't know. God knows. Only God is the one that decides exactly how that works. While uh, if I do something good, I'm going to affect things anywhere in the world. And we have, we're good? We are good? We're on? Yes? Yannison, can you hear me? Why can't I hear my friend? Something is not working with the phones today. Yannison, I apologize. I'm sure we'll get our crack tech people in here to figure out the phones, but something is not working on the phones. We Skype today, have no idea. But we're all looking, questioning, not sure what's happening, and we will move on. So, Yannison, I apologize. This time it's my fault. So, um, Kelsey, you ready to move on? Let's move on. So let's get to our new letter of the week, because I got a story I got to get to. So this week's letter of the week, which is right behind me, is the letter Dalid, the fourth letter of the Hebrew alphabet. Its numerical value is four. And the word this week is Dorash. Dorash means to seek. Um, it, it fits in well with our author, with uh, Ellen Besner in her book, Double Threat, that she was seeking to find out what happened to all these soldiers, what happened to, to what was with the anti-Semitism, why weren't they treated the same, why did they have their grave markers, who's responsible for their grave markers. So all these things um, really fit into the word darash, darash means to seek, um, 
And that's what we're always doing. On the show, we're always seeking. We're looking to find the truth. We're looking to understand what the Torah wants from us. And with that, I must tell you a fascinating story. It's like a story in a story. And I will do my best to finish it right on time. So it happened to be this week, um, last uh, Sabbath. So the rabbi wasn't in synagogue. He was away. So when the rabbi's away, by the Kiddush, by when we sit down to have like a, you know, some cake and, and cookies or something after the prayers. So uh, if he's not there, I speak. So I basically said the concept that even though we don't rely on miracles, but when I'm, when I'm doing God's work, when I'm praying, when I'm studying, when I'm doing good deeds, I don't have to, I can rely on a miracle that God will take care of my, of my, uh, of my means, of what we call parnasa, of my, uh, of my livelihood. I don't have to make myself crazy. That was a gist. So a guy says, oh, you know the story with Gary? I said, nope, I don't know the story. Listen to this amazing story. So there's a, a person, we'll call him Gary, and he was uh, working on making a major um, merger with his bank, with another bank, he had investors in New York, and he had a meeting set for, I believe, 9 o'clock in the morning in Manhattan. Well, got to pray first, goes to the, to the synagogue, I'm assuming it was around 8 o'clock, and uh, there's no quorum. There's only, let's say, six, seven, eight guys, and they don't have a quorum. And, um, yeah, I know, I got one minute. We're going to speed up the story. And the guy leading the prayers um, had lost a parent, so he wanted to have a quorum, a minion, and they didn't have. And he kept saying to everybody, I'm telling you we're going to have a quorum. Please wait, please wait, please wait. So this Gary waited. He ended up being 40 minutes late to a major meeting in Manhattan with his, uh, with his, with all kinds of uh, business people that were going to help him merge his bank, and he figured, I'm toast. I'm walking in 40 minutes late. He walks up. He goes into the meeting. He walks into the meeting. Who walks in right behind him? The guy leading the prayer service. The guy walks in, sees Gary standing there. He says, "We're in." And uh, so you see from a story that I cut short that you'll never lose when you go ahead and do what God wants you to do. And now my time is up. So thank you to our wonderful sponsor listeners. You know, I couldn't do it without you. Thank you to my wonderful production team today. We have Ethan, Kelsey, Zach, and Angel here. I hope I've left you some food for thought. Until next week, I am Rabbi Tzvi Jacobson. You've been listening to Let's Talk to our new radio media. And until next week, don't forget to think about it.